Is continuity winning the day in the NBA, and can the Utah Jazz match it? It's next on Locked on Jazz. You are Locked on Jazz, your daily podcast on the Utah Jazz. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. How are you? I'm David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz, Jazz NBA insider. This is Locked on Jazz, your daily podcast on the Utah Jazz. Today, the Denver Nuggets look brilliant. Are they following the old school continuity stretch to get to the NBA Finals in a logical, normal path that the Jazz should try to emulate over time in a market that's similar? Maybe. Boston Celtics? Maybe doing the same. We'll talk about that. I looked at Cason Wallace for a long time over the last few days. I want to share my thoughts on him. Maybe the most perfect fit for the Utah Jazz in the NBA draft. And a late game watch on the Sixers and the Celtics, which is getting pretty fascinating. Shot making makes everything look way better. And we'll do the lottery, though. We won yesterday, or we came in fourth yesterday. We've yet to win. Maybe today's the day. I'm David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz, Jazz NBA insider, and this is Locked on Jazz, your daily podcast on the Utah Jazz, giving insight, expertise, geeky numbers, and hopefully making it way better to be a Jazz fan each and every day. Thank you so much for making Locked on Jazz your first listen of the day. We are free and available on all podcasting platforms and apps there for you. Also on YouTube, hit the subscribe, follow and hit the bell button on YouTube. Be notified whenever you're there. Thanks very much uh, for jumping aboard. All right. Uh, today's show is brought to you in part by eBay Motors. Uh, so here's what's super interesting to me about the Denver Nuggets and what they did last night as they now move along. There, we could make begin to make a pretty strong argument. The Denver Nuggets are actually following the exact same path that we're always we're used to, that frankly the Warriors followed, that if we go before that, that the that the Chicago Bulls followed, that they had to get through the bad boys and the bad boys had to get through the Celtics. And we've just had this kind of, if you look at NBA, Denver might actually be on the natural progression of what an NBA team should do. In the 20... 17-18 seasons, the last time they did not make the playoffs. They won 46 games. They finished ninth, if I remember correctly. They might have lost game 82 that year. But that's also the year in which the team finally begins to become Nikola Jokic. He's 22. Jamal Murray's 20. They're not ready yet. This is still Gary Harris's and Will Barton's team, largely. They're not Paul Millsap's on that roster. And it's not till the next season in the 18-19 season where Denver makes the playoffs for the first time and they win their first round series in seven games of the San Antonio Spurs. They go 54-28. and 28. Jokic is a baby still. He's 23. Murray's a baby still. He's 21. They had Gary Harrison, Will Barton, and Paul Millsap, and Monty Morrison, Malik Beasley, all, all under 30, playing a lot of minutes for him. The oldest, all of them under 24, I think, other than Will Barton. Or 24 or under. Um, so, then they lose in Game 7 to San, to Portland in the second round and don't advance. The next year is 1920. It's the bubble. They have the remarkable comeback against us. They have the remarkable comeback against the Clippers. And they move to the Western Conference Finals. There's your natural progression, right? So, they barely miss the playoffs. They win a playoff series. They lose 
a game seven. They win two game sevens. They then get blown out by the Lakers. They're on the natural route. Their guys are still young. It's the bubble year and everything seems weird. And then in the 2021 season, Jamal Murray, 48 games into his playing season, I think it was about the 51st game of the season, gets injured. He tears his ACL. And that really probably, in retrospect, should have stopped their timeline. Right? We, we, I think we all expected more out of them. And Denver then became kind of this team that for some reason we classified as maybe not being where they should have been. But I, if I remember correctly, it's about, it's a weird year. It's kind of about the 50th game of the year. They're pretty good. They're like 34 and 20. And Jamal Murray uh, ends up tearing his ACL. Well, that should stop the Nuggets timeline. We should have just stopped the Nuggets timeline at that moment. They're a team that made the playoffs, hit the second round, hit the conference finals. They're on their route. They end up that next year without Jamal Murray in the playoffs. They actually, I think, win up, if I remember correctly, they win a playoff series remarkably in the 2021 series beating Portland. And then they get blown out by the Suns where they've run out of gas. And then last year they just ran out of gas before they got to the playoffs. But they did it without Jamal Murray. So neither of those, in my mind, like should count. Now we have them in this natural continuity progression and they're blowing people out. Like this is a dominating run. They're eight and three. They won by 30 last night. This is dominating. And all of a sudden, Nikola Jokic is 27. Jamal Murray's 25. They made they added Aaron Gordon is 27. They drafted Michael Porter Jr. is 24. They've made beautiful moves around the edges where they moved out Will Barton for Contavious Caldwell Pope. They moved out and got Bruce Brown as a free agent. They've just done super nice things around the edges. But it, I think the Denver Nuggets are a testament to, to continuity and a little bit of something we should probably be watching as the Utah Jazz. The fact is, the other team that fits into this is the Golden State Warriors. Like, it doesn't feel like it anymore, but if we were to go back through and remember, and there's involved a coaching change that clearly was beneficial, um, but if we kind of remember this, and the Warriors followed this path too, right? So the Warriors, in 2011-12, they kind of, they make Mark Jackson gets them, or 12-13, they beat the Denver Nuggets in the first round, they lose in the second round to a veteran San Antonio Spurs team, And at that point in the 2012-13 season, they've begun to get their pieces, but Steph's 24, Clay's 22, Draymond's 22 in his first year. He doesn't even start yet. And David Lee's still a major part of that team. they're, They're a bunch of young guys. They then lose in the first round the next year, and then they add Steve Kerr, and they vault obviously to the NBA finals and the title and, and Steph goes crazy and, and at 26 and clay at 24 and Draymond at 24 and they add Harrison Barnes. And then they start doing brilliant things with the Andrew Bogut's Andre Iguodala, 30 year old around. They, they follow the traditional pattern as well and have kind of now continued to do so. Theirs was pretty fast with that coaching change, but it's interesting if you kind of, to me, th- there might be a real testament to continuity that is going on here. Uh, the Boston Celtics did it really fast last year, and their guys are... And I think continuity, and you can win with your guys being a little younger than they have been. Um, you know, 
Boston's had this continuity with Brad Stevens, and then they changed to MA Udoka, and they, you know, finally break through after a bad year the year before and get to the finals last year. And they're doing it with Tatum at 23, Brown at 25, Smart at 27, Robert Williams at 24. It's incredibly young. So there does seem to be this kind of little trend of continuity, but maybe what the biggest difference is in the NBA now today than what it was then, and if we go back to the bad boys and Michael and the Jazz and all those teams trying to break through is you had to be 30. And you had to hold that continuity for a longer period of time. But I think Denver's showing us a natural progression of how you build a championship and have the best player in the world, right? And have one of the three or four or five best players in the world. Jason Tatum's one of the five best. Steph's one of the five best. Jokic, like you've got to have that guy. It's why all these rumors of Luka Doncic, the answer on the Luka Doncic, we haven't done a show on it, and we probably should, is like you just put all of it on the table. All of it. Like as much as you can to put on the table to make it hard for them to say no because you just don't get players like that ever. All right. So anyway, uh, Den- Denver was brilliant last night. Uh, we'll do late game watch in a second. Casey Wallace, I might be falling for you, my friend. We'll be talking about him coming up here on Locked On Jazz. Locked On Jazz is brought to you by Murdoch Hyundai, located forty six forty six South State Street. I um I oh my so. I ran my, we have the Ionic 5, and uh, I ran the Ionic 5 down to Murdoch and Denim and their group just did amazing customer service for me on the service department, so that was like super. And I parked next to the new Ionic 6. I am not a car person. Like, I love the Hyundais because it matches my personality. Like, it's an analytical decision. It gives me all the best Safety features, all the most features. It drives great. Like, I would never pay $35,000 extra for an emblem. Like, that's just not who I am. So the Hyundai is like the perfect car for me because it is it peaks out on all the safety features. It peaks out on all the versatility. It peaks out on all of, like, the fun, like, you know, various things. And they're great. And we have the Ionic 5. Love it. We have two Santa Fe's. I'm driving the Santa Cruz, which is kind of a fun uh, car truck right now. The Ionic 6 looks so cool. And I'm and so like I, I'm actually looking at trading the Ionic 5 for the Ionic 6. This is just like I've never done this. I've never been moved by a car like this where I'm like about to do something like that where I would pay I'm basically doing exactly what I said I would never do. It's so cool. All right. Uh tweet me and tell me not to do it. Just save me the it'll be different in my Twitter right now. Uh, so yeah, that's all at Murdoch Hyundai. I, I guess that was an ad for Murdoch Hyundai. If you're going to stop by though, email me at dlock09 at gmail.com. That's dlock09 at gmail.com so that I can get you the VIP meeting over at Murdoch Hyundai. That was either a confession or that was an ad for Murdoch Hyundai at 4646 South State Street in Linden or in Logan. Today's show is also brought to you by our friends over at eBay Motors. You know what you want. You want that green check mark. You want the security of knowing that with their amazing selection, when I say amazing selection on eBay Motors, I'm talking 122 million parts to choose from, and you are back in the game in no time. But how do I know what fits my car? Well, the eBay guaranteed fit. You can make sure every part you need fits just right the first time around. So just add your car to my garage. Look for the green check mark that shows up to show you which parts will fit. 
or you get your money back. It's all that easy. You bring home a win when it's the right parts guaranteed. Get the right parts, the right fit, the right prices on ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. eBay, guaranteed fit only available to U.S. customers. Eligible items only. Exclusions do apply. It's ebaymotors.com. Thanks so much for making Locked on Jazz your first listen. I do sincerely appreciate it today. And next week, I'll try to do more player breakdowns on the NBA draft and looking at players. We'll look at Case and Wallace right now. NBA, uh, Rafael Barlow, NBA, Locked on NBA Big Board, did a really interesting um, interview with Case and Wallace this week, one-on-one. So if you want to hear it, and then his background, he's known Case and Wallace um, for a really, really long time. So here's the measurements on Case and Wallace. We don't involve him, but he's 6'4", 193-pound freshman out of Dallas, Texas. He shot 45% from the floor, only 35% from three. Free throw line percentage to me is probably more important than anything else. Um, He shot 76% at the line, which tells me that I think with time and reps and NBA time, his shot will come around. Um, What did he do in marquee games? That's something I always like to look at. So NCAA tournament, second round, Kentucky loses to third seed Kansas State. Cason Wallace goes 9 of 11. With 21 points, 9 rebounds, 4 assists, and 2 steals. That's pretty clutch. So that was in their their second NCAA game. They Kentucky loses in the first round of the, ACE, of the SEC tournament. Cason Wallace goes 3 of 10, 1 of 6 from 3, 7 points, 4 rebounds, 5 assists. Not great. Interestingly, whatever reason to end the season, they played Vanderbilt back-to-back games. They lost both times, and Case and Wallace really struggled against Vandy. The other thing I like to look at on a player when I look at their stat sheets is what did they do the second time they played someone? So I watched his game against Tennessee. He had a back injury, left the game. I kind of then wished I didn't because he, he did leave with a back issue. The first time he played Tennessee, who at the time was ranked fifth in the country, super aggressive guards, getting in on him. And my criticism would be that they were getting in on him at, at 30 feet and he just didn't go. Like the, the like at some point, if a guy's up in your shorts at 35 feet, you just got to go beat this guy. Like you got to just go. He never did. In that game, he goes 0 for 3 in 22 minutes. He ends up having six assists. So I was super curious Four turnovers, like not great. Or four personal fouls, five turnovers. Six assists, five turnovers, no points against Tennessee's pressure defense. Like I was not wowed by him. So I went back to then watch the next time they played Tennessee. Now this is home, not road. He's better. He's active. He shakes 14 shots, which is a big number for him. We'll get into that in a second. He does go 0 for 3 from 3. He has six assists, six rebounds. He scores 16 points. He turns it over three times. But vast improvement. The other thing that jumps out to me on Case and Wallace, and I'll look, there's a few other teams there, is by about January 20, maybe by January 1st, he becomes just completely vital to Calipari. So he plays 40 minutes against LSU. He then hurts his back after that. Does He's in the 20s, seemingly gets healthy again, 36, 32, 37, 39, 38, 39, 38. 37 minutes a game. NCAA tournament, 39-34. So from a, coaches tell us a lot about what they think of players, right? Like this is a guy that's not, he needs him on the floor for them to win games. Other teams that they played that are interesting, they played twice. Here's uh, uh, the SEC, right? You don't always play 
everyone twice along uh, along the way. Um, so he did do that with Tennessee, and then the SEC season, he Alabama and who was pretty good. He only played once, um, and then Arkansas, who has the two guards that you would have loved to see him play a second time, he only plays once as well. He played Florida twice. First time he was great. Second time he was not. Second game was a road game. So then you get into a little bit of a question of like, do we have a home road issue going on here? He plays 21 home games this year and Cason Wallace shoots 50%. In the nine road games, he shot 31%. Woo! So 50% from the field on home games, 31% on road games. That's wild. Here's what I do really like about him. What I really, really like about him is he's not addicted to the ball. A lot of young guards you watch when they play, they have to have the ball in their hands all the time. He's catching, rebounding, pushing ahead. Like in Will Hardy's system, I think he could be really interesting in the fact that he's always pushing it ahead. He's moving it forward. He's doing a lot of those kind of things. I think you know that could be really, really interesting to watch him make those plays, do those things, um, and, and, and very impressive um, in that. Uh, when he did drive to the bat, like there's little things you look for. Does he understand the game and the angles? I would say yes. Like he moves himself into position to make a pass. He sees ahead. He catches and passes where he's already seen. If the ball's here, he knows he's getting it to there. So a bunch of those plays I really like about him. I, I kind of feel like those are the items that you can fall in love with a player and all their this, but if they don't have that, to me, it's super hard to play the NBA game if you don't have that natural instinct. Those, and I'm not sure I think those things are teachable, like the instinct to get off of it, the instinct to see it before it happens, the instinct to understand like, oh, that, I don't know that passing. Well, if I go two steps this way, I can create that passing angle. Um, I can think of plenty of players who I watch in the NBA that don't have that. So those are things I, I love. One thing that was interesting as I was watching was I began to wonder like, wow, does he get off it too much? Like, what are we trying to get here? And this gets to the point where I mentioned earlier, he took 14 shots in the game. He did. He took 17 shots against Arkansas, which was the most he took in any game all year. He has a lot of single digit shot attempt games. And Raphael Barlow at, in locked on NBA big board yesterday does an interview with Casey Wallace, but he tells the story that when Cason Wallace was a young player, he wouldn't shoot. He would never shoot. Like, Raphael Barlow has literally followed Cason Wallace since he was in, like, sixth grade. And he wouldn't shoot. So this was interesting. Cason Wallace in the interview says, I have a lot more of my offensive game to go and display. He's just really never displayed it for whatever reason. That's who he was as a kid. Um, and it's an interesting question of, like, what's the, what's, like, if I'm the Jazz, Ron Kimmons, their sports psychologist, who's, Dr. Kimmons is awesome, um, like, I want to get into this a little bit. Like, what is it about him? What, like, does that just mean he's an unbelievable teammate? Or does it, there's something where he doesn't want the moment or he doesn't want to take the shot? Like, super interesting, kind of get to know the player, go to the combine, sit down with him, ask him weird questions that sports psychologists can ask people to get answers. Really curious to hear what they find out on that. And who he is. But I really like him. Like if the Jazz ended up with Cason Wallace of the ninth pick of the draft, I'd be super happy. He's 6'4". I do love that he gets off the ball. I do love that he sees the game. His drop, one thing I always look at is one foot versus two foot jumps. 
there's just so little room in the in the college game, but he went off one foot the one time. Um, I was super impressed by that. Um, so I, I generally was kind of, oh, you know, his shot seems fine, okay, not great, but I think it'll be totally fine. Um, in fact, his free throw shooting in the second half of the season was way better than his free throw shooting um, in the first half of the season, which makes me even more belief that his... Shot will be fine. I, I don't have it in front of you. I'll pull it up here. I ran this number. I don't know where I put it. Um, I just thought it was a, like, I looked at his, um, it was kind of an interesting little, like, if you go look at his free throw shooting by, um, where was it? By month, uh, February takes, he shoots 92%. He goes 24 of 26. He opens the year in November, December. He starts the year just 15 of 26 from the free throw line at 58, about 57%. And he closes the year in the uh, from January 1 on. In February, he was great. But in January 1 on, not a lot of free throws, right? We're talking pretty minimal numbers here, which is not a, we'd like that number to be way higher. I think he finishes the year 33 of 48 for 86%. That that leads me to believe this kid can shoot. I think this is a little bit of an untapped guy. I'm in on Cason Wallace is basically what I'm here to tell you today on Locked on Jazz. All right, late game watch, Celtics 76ers, and we'll do the lottery here as we continue. Thanks so much for making Locked on Jazz your first listen of the day. Might as well make Locked on NBA Big Board your second. Next week, player breakdowns. I'm going to try to watch Jerese Wallace uh, Walker. I owe him that. I'm going to watch Keontae George. I want to watch him. Um, so I'm going to try to see if I can get some players in this weekend uh, for you uh, and see what's going on. All right, late game watch was super interesting to me because I think we can be wowed by shot making. So Jason Tatum makes two great threes, one over and B to the left side, another's a step back. Mark, uh, Marcus Smart gets into the window to get a shot, and the Sixers simultaneously are missing shots. And I am not entirely sure in this stretch who I thought got better looks. And you just can get wowed by shot making and give this, it's, hey, it's what the game is. Like, let's not forget that like X's and O's and all this other stuff is cute. But the fact of the matter is, it's what the game is. And P.J. Tucker got a wide open corner three, and James Harden missed a layup. And or two layups in that in that stretch that would have kind of changed the game. Joel Embiid got a hook shot right in the middle of the lane that like I'll take every single time. Joel Embiid missed a 15 footer. I'll take every single time. Um, one really bad step back contested three by in that mix. But but here's what I thought was interesting. One is you know I've heard a lot about Jalen Brown's handle not being good enough. That's evident actually. Boston doesn't put the ball in his hands late in games to make a lot of plays. It's either Marcus Smart or Jason Tatum. Um, Boston went with two bigs for a long time with Robert Williams and Al Horford. Al Horford guarding and beating. Robert Williams was kind of the lurking big, and it made some big plays. That was That's interesting development. I've always felt that the next big thing in this league is secondary rim defenders, but one of your two rim defenders has to be able to dribble and pass. You can't have two guys on the floor that can't dribble and pass, and Horford can do that. Uh, I loved what the Sixers ran, actually. I feel like the Sixers run, have run really good stuff for their personnel, they ran clear side pick and roll with Harden and Bede on the right side with Maxi's the first pass and he could break it at the 45. Um, they then ran a Maxi and Bede pick and roll with Harden at the 45 on the other side. He could break it. I like the clear sided stuff. It gives him bead room to work. It's really hard to bring your double. Um, they just they just didn't get sh- you know Max. They they come down and Bede misses a seven foot hook shot with five minutes left that would have given them a four point lead. Maxi misses an open three that would have given them a five point lead. Harden takes a bad shot. 
Then they're down one, and Bede misses a 15-foot jumper at the free throw line. I don't think he can hate it. That would have given him a one-point lead. Um, and then Maxi misses another three, which was on a pretty good defensive play um, with 316 left. Uh, they get the offensive rebound. They miss one of the two free throws. Then Tucker gets a wide open corner three and misses off a Harden give. Um, like they just missed, but I actually liked what Philly ran, and I feel like they've got a really good understanding of who they are. I think it's gonna be super interesting if that game seven is tight late. Boston's doing a lot of the same stuff they do. They run three men up in the middle. It's usually Brown, Tatum, and Smart. I, I'll run the same criticism a lot of, that I gave after game five. A lot of time to get to something that I'm not sure is that big an advantage. They seem to really want Maxi on Tatum. And maybe the numbers show something I don't see. Um, but frankly, smart beat Tobias Harris on a play. They they run like Tatum hits the big three with six seconds on the clock on a tough step back out of that action at the top. I'm not sure he just couldn't have gotten the same shot earlier or made more happen or somewhere else. It doesn't feel right to me, but they're getting what they want um, and they got the win on that. Um, and Smart goes after Tobias Harris and Tatum's going after Maxi. You know what? Take it the other way. If that's actually the matchups they want, it's a little unconventional it's in, and that's where they're going and I'm impressed that that's, they know exactly what they want. I don't see that as what I'd want, but they clearly think that Smart is smaller and quicker and able to beat Harris and that Maxie's lack of size, Tatum can get over the top on him. And those are the matchups they want. They take a lot of time in their possessions to get to it. I think that'll be tough if it goes tight, tight late. So we'll see if they go game seven tight late. My feeling actually is I like what Philly's running more than what Boston's running late in games. And it looks at Philly's getting more than what Boston's getting. That maybe turn out to be irrelevant because it's who makes the shots. All right, here we go. Four days, seven hours, 34 minutes to the lottery. The number one pick of the NBA draft and Victor Webanyama goes to the Indiana Pacers. NBA cringes. Portland gets the second pick. Detroit tanks for three. San Antonio tanks for four. Houston tanks for five. Charlotte six. Orlando seven. Washington eight. Utah nine. Dallas 10. Chicago goes to Orlando 11. Would you rather have 10 and Dallas loses their pick to New York or nine and Dallas keeps their pick? That's your weekend thought. Have a great weekend. Thanks very much for listening. I greatly appreciate you. It is Locked on Jazz, your daily podcast in the Utah Jazz, your team every day.